guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Shivani. I'm Zach, and we are very excited to have Eddie Huang joining us here today. Eddie Huang is a celebrated chef, restaurateur, food celebrity, and clothing designer, lawyer, and writer. His memoir, Fresh Off the Boat, was reviewed by the New York Times as a surprisingly sophisticated memoir about race and assimilation in America. An ABC sitcom based on the memoir is the first Asian-American family-centric TV series in nearly 20 years. Eddie's new book, Double Cup Love, On the Trail of Family, Food, and Broken Hearts in China, was published in May of 2016. Thank you so much for joining us, Eddie. Yeah, um, thanks for having me. So to, for all of our listeners out there, Eddie just finished giving an amazing talk plus a very long Q&A session. So that was a very kudos for, for coming on to the show. Thank but, you. Um, you guys got good radio voices. Thank you. I appreciate that. So we always love starting our shows with this concept of inflection points. Um, and those are basically anything that you would constitute a turning point in your life, be it your professional life, your career, or your personal life. Um, and so my question to you is that you are certainly a master of several trades. Uh, what would you consider to be the most important inflection point in your life? You know... The first inflection point I can remember is my mom and dad were fighting the house. Mm. And one day we had dinner and my mom had asked my dad to take her to the mall because she didn't drive. She couldn't drive. She was scared of the freeway. And um, from where we lived to go to the mall, my dad was going to have to take the beltway. Beltway traffic is really bad in the DMV. And um, we were eating halfway through dinner. My mom was like, all right. You promised to take me to the mall. You got to take me. You got to take me. Excuse me. And my dad was just really getting annoyed. And he was tired. And he had just worked. And my mom kept poking him. Like, you're not. are you going to take me? I know you're not going to take me. You said you were going to take me. You're not going to take me. And then my dad just got mad. And he flipped over the dinner table. Food went everywhere. And he's like, I don't want to go fight traffic. Like, I don't want to go fight traffic with you. You know, fuck the mall, whatever. And he ran off. They started screaming at each other. There's like food everywhere. And I don't even remember this, but my mom said that I picked up two chopsticks and I thought they were like weapons. <laughs> and I was like, Mom, I'll go fight traffic with you. Because I thought traffic was a person. Oh, wow. And I was like, if dad won't fight traffic, I will fight traffic. And she thought it was cute. It's her favorite story. And um, I think that's when I learned to fight. Mm. That's when I learned, like, you know, I want to defend my mom. And I've always wanted to, like, defend myself, my family, or ideas I believed in. And I think that that is the moment as a kid that I decided to fight, you know? And a lot of times, you don't have to fight. And and it should be something that is a last resort. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm really big now on slowing down, thinking of ways to solve problems, ways to, like, alternatively resolve disputes. But sometimes, man, it takes two to have a reasonable resolution. If you're dealing with another side that's not being reasonable, then you may have to fight. And so that was a big one. Um, I'll share another inflection point with you. It happened recently in my life because for a long time I was an alien and I was an outsider. Mm -hmm. And um, I've always used humor as a way to teach people, get my point across, and diffuse tension and also get people to like me, right? Absolutely. Just be funny. Humor is a good way to do it. Um, 
But I think I've used it as a defense mechanism for a very long time. And recently I wrote a script for some people that I really respected for a long time. They'd done some great stuff. And originally they had asked me to write comedy because like that's what they thought I would do. Mm-hmm. And they said to me, you know what? We read this comedy script. is good. Like, you're very funny. It comes naturally to you. It's not hard. But what we're noticing with your humor is it's painful. It's like really painful humor. Right. And... There's gravitas to what you do. And we don't want you to write humor. We want to push you towards like the bottom of your emotions. Like we want the depth of emotions. Mm -hmm. You're going to be funny regardless what you do, but don't think about it. Don't worry about it. Don't even try. Like we want you to write drama for us. And that was a big turning point in my life because it came from some people I really respected. And I was like, wow. So I don't have to be funny. If I want to be funny, I can. Right. But like, I don't have to be like people want to hear what I have to say. Mm-hmm. And that was big. That was really big. And um, so I'm doing that. And that's my most recent inflection point. And uh, I think if you keep your eyes and ears open and pay attention to what's going on in your life, there's tons of them. No, absolutely. Um, so that's a, that's a different level of vulnerability. And so my question is that... You, you sort of talked about this in your, your talk, and you mentioned it in your prior answer, that you achieved this level of rationality. Um, so from passion came this kind of clear-headed focus. And how do you sort of reconcile that with the fact that your craft is so passion-driven, it's so emotion-driven? How do, you, how do you really level those two complex, different emotions um, into really producing the most candid uh, productions and then you just mentioned drama is is kind of what you're allowing yourself to do now yeah I think a lot of times like passion is equated with irrational behavior mm. but the most satisfying moments and the things I'm most passionate about make sense and they're real okay and so I don't see them mm. as like opposing ideas right when I started to use my logic and reasoning more and focus on it, and I started to see, like, at least in my mind, more of what I thought was the truth or more of, like, what I thought was reality, I became really passionate about it. You know, I, I, I think that if you stand on logic and reasoning, you aren't being fooled, and the things you're seeing that you gravitate towards and that matter to you, they're real. Right. They're, they're being considered. Um, you're not just falling in love with everything, right? So in a lot of ways, your passion and your love is being tested. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes I think there's a lot of things that you like or you're drawn to and you can't necessarily explain why. That doesn't mean it's irrational. It just means that you're going to have to work on understanding why. And I think it's very important to always ask how, what, when, where, why. And then when you still love it and you still can't solve that problem and you can't understand it, then it's probably something metaphysical. Do you know what I mean? And those are just those things that humans will never understand. But I do, at the end of the day, go with my gut. Absolutely. You know, there's also, I think it was St. Thomas Aquinas, like his philosophy was like the leap of faith. The way that he explained like why he believed in God was leap of faith. Like, I don't believe in organized religion. I don't don't subscribe to any organized Mm -hmm. religion, but I do think there's something I don't think it's God. I don't think it's a man. I don't think it needs to be personified. But I think there's something we don't understand. And sometimes I'll go with my gut 
on a leap of faith because there's no tool and there's nothing that can make it make sense to me. No, absolutely. I think that's the uh, innovator dilemma often is that what you're doing is incredibly, it's unknown to the time period, unknown to the the people you're trying to to really sell it to. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's really that element of trusting your gut. Uh, but I wanted yeah, to... Yeah, you know, what you just said yeah, was no, really cool. I, I allow myself to fail. I don't like to fail. Gotcha. I don't seek to fail or win. Uh-huh. But even if you fail sometimes, the process teaches you a lot and it's fun. Absolutely. Like my biggest failure, I think, has been that restaurant show year that I opened for like three months and then we lost the liquor license because I started doing all you can drink for local parties. Cause I, I didn't did ag- agree about that. Yeah, because yeah. I didn't agree with, you know, them banning for loco. And we went down in flames. We all lost money. But I was like, it's kind of epic to lose a restaurant because <laughs> of an all-you-can-drink-for-local party. Fair. And like, people in New York still st- stop me. They're like, yo, I-, I know you've been doing your thing, but yo, that for local shit was fucking crazy. <laughs> you know, like, so it's like even your biggest failures is fucking, if you followed your heart, and I love for local irrationally. Yeah, absolutely. Has very incredible results. So that's an element of conscious consumerism. And you kind of spoke briefly to that um, in the yeah. talk where you were like, if you're if you're purchasing things at Walmart, if you're purchasing things at Chick-fil-A, you're subscribing to their politics. Yeah. How do you think that's impacted your life? Or do you live very, you know, uh, consciously and cognizantly of the fact that you know, these... Inherently small decisions are building up a platform that you may not agree with. How, how closely aligned do you live your life with conscious consumerism? Very, very aligned. Okay. You know, um, I didn't eat Chick-fil-A for like 15 years. That's incredible. Yeah. And then recently someone told me like, they apologized. And I was like, they apologized? And I was like, like so two weeks ago I had a Chick-fil-A sandwich and I was like, it was really, really good. But yeah. then I was like, even though they apologized though, they're like, they're still fucked up because they don't believe gay people should be allowed to be gay and Mm. be married and I was like I probably won't eat another Chick-fil-A sandwich for 15 years you know but um, no like I really go out of my way to not support businesses that I don't believe in you know I slip up like I said I'll eat a Taco Bell because it's the only fast food by my house but you know um, I really tried the restaurant we use like all natural hormone free antibiotic free meats and then we don't like list it Mm -hmm. and we're not like listing the farms and being fancy. We're just like, we think we should do this. And we do. And um, yeah, I, uh, I I don't know if I can give you a percentage, but I definitely am very cognizant about who I'm supporting and where I'm spending my money. That, no, that's very admirable. Um, um, so I'd like to, um, I think the listeners would like to hear more about conscious consumerism, um, especially because with how it relates to um, sort of, I guess, financial situations, because a lot of the complaints about um, maybe organic food or, um, you know, maybe like like things like grass-fed beef are more expensive. So how would you, um, like, what recommendations could you make to people who are trying to do that? Or um, maybe from your own experience, how do you integrate that into your life? That's a good question. I think the biggest issue with conscious consumerism is that marketing companies, the economy of conscious consumerism is a very privileged thing. They market it towards higher income people, people with more disposable income. And um, I think that with conscious consumerism, people need to make it available on a micro low income level. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't care if there's some tasting menu with grass fed beef and you're this chef that's nose to tail. Like, you're not impacting anyone. You're serving like 20 people a night. Do you know what I mean? Or maybe you're a restaurant that serves 100 people a night. Fantastic, great, good for you. You know what? Like. 
I want to see this on an in and out level. I want to see this on a McDonald's level. Like, let's invest in those brands. Let's support those brands. And, um, you know, I think, I guess Chipotle did that a little bit, but then they, like, fell back because <laughs> what there was, like, the, the huge casual. crisis this yeah, year. Uh-huh. And so you start to, like, man, there's a lot of false profits in this world. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I think that as creators and people who involve themselves in commerce, you have to really come up with conscious consumerism, um, businesses and opportunities so that people without much money can make those choices because especially low-income neighborhoods, they they have no access to like fresh fruit and vegetables. Even if they wanted to buy organic, it's not available and then it's like priced out of their income. So I think those are the things we need to figure out. Like let's make conscious consumerism on economies of scale right like if you can combine those two ideas that's fantastic because economies of scale has kind of always supported and projected and amplified shit businesses right (laughs) no that's that's fair now so definitely talking to you fortune 500 ceos um but basically you you touched upon this element of you know talking to talking to neighborhoods or, or parts of the community that maybe don't have access to the same educational level the same resources the same you know socioeconomic uh opportunities that a lot of us do and so this element of food and education i I really stuck with me from your talk was that if you're kind of providing this this element of being very pure with a with a cuisine or a a type of food there should be an inherent element of education with it so you're not risking the the opportunity to appropriate it um and i don't think that happens a lot i i mean maybe at higher scale restaurants um but I don't think there's that same amount of education. How do you, do you think it's possible to merge that gap? Yeah, I mean, like we sell a $4 sandwich at Bauhaus mm. and I think in a lot of ways, we put Taiwan on the map. Right. You know, like uh, even now, some people are like, where's, uh, where? like I, I love, I love Thai food. They're like, I love Pad Thai. I'm like, no, I'm not from Thailand. I'm, <laughs> my family is from, <laughs> from Taiwan, Taiwan. Gotcha. you know? And um, you can do it. And that's why I did Bauhaus. Cause I was like, you know, we can serve you this conscious meat and educate you about our family histories and we don't have to charge you any more than $4 or $5, you know? Yeah. And I, I'm i not saying like, I'm, you should do what I'm doing, but I think it's important that people are doing this at the lower economic levels like why is it only in fine dining that you're explaining what you're serving absolutely you know i remember on the show we went to daily city in 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 the bay and there was a filipino restaurant we went to and the woman serving us we'd ask her what was in the dishes and she said oh chicken and carrots and peas and and stuff (laughs) and then every dish was brown and stuff and i said yo love you love filipino food (laughs) but like you're on a food show your restaurant's on a show. You have a responsibility to distribute culture. Restaurants, the primary responsibility is to distribute culture. It's to sustain and to like feed people and nourish people, mm-hmm. but then to distribute culture. And when you don't take that responsibility seriously, I think as a restaurant, you're failing. Right. And, um, you know, I, I, I would say that about all businesses. It's like, all right, serving a need, distributing culture. And so I don't think you have to be a rocket scientist and I don't think you have to charge a lot of money to do it. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, we're running out of time, but we like to end each podcast with a single question that is consistent across all the interviews we do. Um, And that is, um, what is your personal definition of success? And 
if you can elaborate on that and tell us what you think it is, then that'd be great. Yeah, you know, when I was a kid, I, I didn't have that many friends. And I remember in high school, like, I would get depressed and shit, like, ninth grade, 10th grade. And um, this sounds morbid, but I would imagine myself dying. And I was like, who would come to my funeral? And I would think about, like, who would come to my funeral? And I was like, man, like, I hope this person comes. I think he's pretty cool. He's my friend. I, I would hope that person came to my funeral. But as I gotten older, I don't have that daydream anymore. And I don't have that nightmare anymore. Um, the only person at my funeral is me. And I think about if I died and if I passed, would I be happy with what I did? Did I always stick up for myself? Did I do the right thing? And um, for the most part, I, I'm pretty satisfied. I get in a lot of arguments. I get in a lot of fights because I really try to make sure that every decision I make, I'm going to be able to live and die with that. That's, to me, the idea of success. I don't always succeed. I make wrong decisions. But, like, at least at the time, with all the factors, I, I like to make sure that I thought it through. I considered everything. And I did, at that time, what I think is the right thing. And, um, like I said, I don't believe in organized religion. But I frequently pray to my ancestors, my grandparents that I know. And I just ask them, like, give me the strength to do the right thing. I want to do the right thing. And um, I try to do that. So that to me is the definition of success, is to do what you feel in your heart is the right thing all the time. No, oh, absolutely. Um, and thank you so much. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have today. So thank you again, Eddie, for joining us. And to all the listeners out there, remember to stay hungry.